Bibles to Exodus chapter number 15 this morning, Exodus chapter number 15, and welcome those of you who listen to us by way of online, watching or listening, and if you can't hear me, well, I guess if you're just listening on, on the audio side, I guess I don't know how you'll know because you can't hear me, <laughs> but if you're on the video side and I'm just moving my lips and you don't hear saying, please put something down in the link there and hopefully you can hear well, and um, Appreciate your feedback in that area as well. All right. Uh, we're in a series that I've entitled the series Getting Out of Egypt. And it is uh, basically going through the book of Exodus, just different things the Lord's put upon my heart as I read through this several times while Jen and I were gone. And this is the fourth uh, sermon. And today's will probably be a two-parter. Didn't really intend it to be, but yeah, I just kept going and going. And I figured y'all didn't want to stay here forever. So I cut it in half. Um, so you're welcome. No, that doesn't mean it'll be any shorter than normal. Yeah. Tonight, or this morning, excuse me, I've entitled this morning's message, Surviving Life's Journey, as we're in that book of Exodus, Surviving Life's Journey. Um, uh, living life in some ways has gotten easier than ever as we have more modern conveniences, but in other ways, surviving this life seems more perilous than ever. And just the idea, you know, the struggles and craziness of life. And it's interesting to me to, to, to look at folks who've overcome tremendous adversity to survive. You know, you like people and you say, I'm a survivor. You know, I don't mean the game show, but the, you know, I'm a survivor and I get through tough things. And I had come across something a, a few weeks ago that I, that I was prepping this sermon. I, oh, I said, this, this works for a survivor. Um, anybody ever heard of a, a woman by the name, her, her name is Vesna uh, Volovich. Vesna Volovich. Sounds, sounds uh, uh, Brother Morgan, sounds Romanian or uh, Czechoslovakian, doesn't it? It's probably one of my things, you know. Vesna Volovich. On January 26th, 1972, she was a flight attendant and here's a wonderful picture of her back from young days at 1972. And she was on a flight out of Yugoslavia, flight number 367, and they were heading to, uh, uh, I think they were they're going to, I don't know where they were going. They were going somewhere. And while they were over Czechoslovakia, the plane that they were in exploded because a terrorist had put a suitcase bomb in the, in the luggage compartment and the, the plane exploded. And as you can imagine, because the plane was at altitude, uh, the crash, the explosion and concurring crash killed everyone on board except Vesna Volovich. <laughs> she survived a fall of 33,333 feet. That's over 10,000 meters or 6.3 miles straight out of the sky. <laughs> so many years later, 50 plus years later, this remains the highest fall survived without a parachute ever recorded. Most of the experts credit her survival to she was in the back part of the plane by the tail section of the plane where they prepared little meals and all that. And there was one of those little food carts in there. And when the explosion occurred, it pinned her against the wall of the, the side of the plane. And she stayed there pinned against that side as she swirled <laughs> all the way down. And then, as God would have it, that part of the plane crashed in a thick snow 
at a favorable angle. However, lest you think that she did that easily and walked away, um, she spent the following days in a coma. She suffered a fractured skull, two broken legs, three broken vertebrae, a fractured pelvis, and several broken ribs, and she was temporarily paralyzed below the waist. However, due to her determination and survival, after 10 months, she taught herself to walk again albeit with a limp. Now, the amazing thing about her story when I was looking at it was, well, number one, she's part of the Guinness Book of World Records. You know, I don't think that's the way I choose to get in the book myself. Um, but after she began to walk again, she went back to the airline that she worked for and wanted to be reassigned as a flight attendant. I don't think so. Um, now, they eventually did hire her, but she worked uh, on the ground at, as a desk job, and I think that's probably the best thing uh, for her. And I don't know about you, but maybe sometimes my survival, I, I look at folks like her, and they're an encouragement to me, like, you know, you, whatever you're going through this morning, you know, you just you push through and just pray to God you'll land in a big snowbank. Now, I don't think, I don't know how encouraging that be to you this morning. So we're going to look in God's word and see some keys to survival uh, of surviving life's journey. In the book of Exodus, you remember, we look at the, the children of Israel, the people of God being delivered from slavery to freedom. And we've said many times how that they, they experienced the first Passover when God brought that 10th plague upon Egypt and the death angel came and, and we see it as a clear picture of salvation where they got to take an innocent lamb, a spotless lamb, and shed its blood and put the blood on the doorpost of your home. And here's the depiction of what it would look like. And obviously that the cross, it, the three sides creates the cross. And we know that it's a wonderful picture of what Jesus did as he died on Passover as our Passover lamb. And I'm thankful that three days later he rose again, just as the Bible had said that the work of Messiah that he would do. Uh, I thought about 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 and 4, where Paul says, I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. That this was God's plan, Old Testament into New Testament, and that Jesus became our Passover lamb and died for our sins, that the death angel the eternal death angel would pass over us when he sees the blood. Now, I know folks say, well, how do I do that today? Do I got to go put real blood on the side of my house? No, no, no. Jesus, that was a picture of the work of Jesus. And we know that at today that it is by faith in the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus said in John chapter 6, this is the work of God. Not that you paint blood on a doorpost outside, but that you believe on him. Believe on the one that fulfilled that, that work. Believe on him whom he hath sent. Jesus said in John chapter 8, he said, that, Therefore I said unto you that ye shall die in your sins. For if you believe not that I am he, that I am the Messiah, that I am the anointed one, that I am the Passover lamb, ye shall die in your sins. So the key to applying the finished blood of Jesus Christ, where he died on a cross and rose again, is through simple faith in Jesus Christ for eternal life. Have you believed him as your personal savior today? I hope you have. You see... The people are delivered as God used Moses, and you know the story. They left Egypt, 
They went down by the Red Sea. They got trapped there by the Red Sea. And then God tells Moses, take your, the rod and put it over the sea. And the sea is parted. And they walk across on dry land. And Pharaoh's army comes in after them. But the water closes up and drowns all of Pharaoh's army. And as God says to Israel, you're going to see the Egyptian army no more. And exactly came true. Now today we come to Exodus chapter 15. And most of Exodus chapter 15 is called the Song of Moses, and I think Miriam sings a little bit in here as well. And it's a song where the, most of the chapter is all about how wonderful it is that God has brought them out of slavery, out of bondage, into freedom, and how God parted the Red Sea, and they walked across on dry land and defeated Pharaoh's army. It's a, a wonderful song of celebration and thankfulness for God's deliverance. And as Christians, every Sunday when we come together, part of the thing that we ought to do is sing together in celebration that we have been delivered. Amen? Amen. And yet the joy was going to be short-lived. Notice our text today is, begins in Exodus chapter 15 and in verse number 22. Exodus 15 beginning in verse number 22. That's what the Bible says. So Moses brought Israel from the Red Sea and they went out into the wilderness of Shur and they went three days in the wilderness and found no water. And when they came to Marah, they could not drink of the waters of Marah, for they were bitter. Therefore the name of it was called Marah. And the people murmured against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? It's amazing to me the short distance from the song of celebration to the whining and murmuring. Now, I know maybe you would say, well, I wouldn't have done that if I saw God part the Red Sea, and I, you know, I wouldn't have. No, I, I have found in my life experience that human nature is pretty constant. I don't think they're all that different than you and I. And I would find that most of us as Christians are far often too guilty of being full of murmuring and complaining. And that we can be at a church service where we're celebrating or some wonderful thing that God has done in our life. And we're making a public testimony of what wonderful thing God's doing in my life. And it, it's a pretty short distance to where we are complaining and murmuring. So Moses leads the people from the Red Sea out in, into the wilderness. And I thought that was interesting in our text where it says that Moses led them. Because I... I thought of it and I thought, you know, who was out front? Anybody remember? Was it Moses out front? Yeah. You remember back in Exodus 13, verse 21, I mean, God says it pretty clear. The Lord went before them and by day in a pillar of a cloud and to lead them in the way and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light to go by day and night. So, Moses was doing what Moses ought to do, and Moses was following God, and, his, and <laughs> the pillar of fire was out front. So I, 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 what I want you to understand, I think it's safe to say that the people were in the will of God when they arrived at Marah. Right? It, wasn't it God that led them where, where they ended up? Yeah, it is, and he, they're right where God led them to be. The people are following the Lord, and the Lord leads them to a time of three days without water. Now, we don't know how much water they had brought with them, you know, in their journey. You know, we're, we don't have all that information, but probably not very much. And, um, but we do know is, you go three days without water? Now, most of us could go three days without eating. 
Most of us probably should consider going three days without eating. But you go three days without any water, that's problematic, isn't it? As far as I can tell by many medical people, that not very long before it becomes a life-threatening circumstance. And when you consider that we know where they're walking in the wilderness in this desert, you go there today and I'm sure it was probably pretty hot in the heat. I, I imagine it wasn't very long that the thirst began to build. And I'm sure if they were godly people, which I, I'm, let's give them the benefit of the doubt, as soon as they began to get thirsty and they realized the water supply was running low, maybe they began to conserve the water. Maybe, maybe uh, I'm, sure, <laughs> I'm sure prayer circles were started. Hey, let's meet in your tent tonight to pray that somehow we come across water. Let's pray. Let's start praying about water. I'm sure there was a prayer going off uh, the first day, the second day, and, and then the third day. They are, they are over it. And I don't know if you've ever been a time in your life where you've been really, really thirsty. But I'm telling you, the, the body begins to really make demands about that. And it's easy as a, if you're a Christian or the, these, the, these folks here is like us, you know, they're looking at God and going, okay, God, you mean you got us out of Egypt and you got us in the Red Sea, but now we're going we're gonna to thirst to death? But then around the horizon, maybe they came up over a little sand dune and they could see off in the distance what they thought, well, I don't think that's a mirage. I think it's actually water. And can you imagine the joy that spread through the camp where everybody goes, oh, there's water up ahead, there's water up ahead, there's water up ahead. And everybody was all happy again. And maybe they started singing the song of Moses again from the earlier in the chapter and sang the second verse. I don't know. But they, 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 they come up to the water and I don't know who's the first person. I don't know how they checked it out. But can you imagine that first person that puts their mouth down there to take some of that wonderful water? They're so thirsty and then the water is bitter, undrinkable, and dangerous. That's why they called this place Mara. The, the Hebrew root word is Mar. They, they literally just called the place bitterness. You see, they had a legitimate need, and they saw an avenue to meet that need, but then their expectation was not met. God, you know we need water. I need water. I'm thirsty. Here's water. God's led us here. We followed the will of God. Now I'm here. So therefore, the water's going to be great. If God brought me here, this water's probably going to be better than any water there's ever been. But instead, it was undrinkable. You know, bitterness arises when we feel that our expectations have not been met. Uh, many times people fall in love with one another and their expectation is they're going to go off into the sunset and they're in love and nobody's been in love like they're in love. Got a teenager? But you don't understand, mom, this love is different. And then the expectation is not met. Big home for bitterness. How about maybe, I've known folks that say, well, I, I'm going to get this different job or I'm going to get, you know, all these different things that come in our life when they, we come to them and we say, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm in the will of God and, and I'm doing all these things and then the expectations are not met and bitterness arises. You know, bitterness has an element to it of like a sadness, a disappointment. I, I thought, uh, I found a couple memes that Allison said I should show up here, you know. At least I'm not bitter. 
Come on, that's funny. 4.0, is that not funny? That's funny. I, um, I like this one, you know, better. This is my response when somebody bitter tries to ruin my day, you know. Bless your heart, you know. Bless your heart. I don't, I don't care. Um, I'm going to smile anyway. Um, bitterness is a part of all of our lives. Whether we manifest it ourselves or somebody else has it towards us. And from bitterness, if we have it, arises resentment and anger. And bitterness just destroys joy. And ultimately, it will destroy the person with whom it resides over a length of time. It destroys relationships. It destroys. I thought about in the Bible, remember Esau? Remember Esau that, you know, he rejected God's way and he didn't value the, the birthright and, and, and the promise that God had placed upon the firstborn son. And remember he came out of hunting and he was a big hunter and boy, he was a big tough guy, you know, and he, he was starving. And you remember the story where his brother Jacob is making some wonderful porridge and Jacob's just, you know, he's not man enough, but he knows how to, he knows how to cook, you know, there's that. So much so that Esau was willing to trade his birthright for a little bowl of soup. And he goes, well, if I don't eat the soup, I'm going to die. And so he foolishly does that. And then years go by. And when it's time to pay up, he doesn't want to give up all the benefits that he had made this trade on. And so Jacob and his mother make use deception and basically get the birthright their own way from Isaac and then when Esau comes in to get it Isaac who was blind didn't realize he gave it to his brother and now Esau realizes it's gone and in Genesis chapter number 27 verse 34 the Bible says and when Esau heard the words of his father he cried with a great and exceeding bitter cry and he said unto his father bless me even me also my oh my father but the blessing of the firstborn was gone and Esau is a picture of the person who doesn't have any value on eternal things, on the things of God, and trades it away foolishly. But I also thought about a guy who, unlike Esau, was a godly person that was doing everything he ought to do and was a hero of the faith. And you, you and I know the story of Job and all the bad things that happened to Job. And in Job chapter number 10 and verse number 1, Job says, My soul is weary of my life. I will leave my complaint upon myself. I will speak in the bitterness of my soul. And I look at these two characters. One Esau, who's a picture of the person who rejects God, rejects that he needs God's uh, blessing or needs God's forgiveness in his life. He, he rejects the ways of God. And, and yet you have this picture of Job, who was a, was a, a man of integrity, who, re, who responded to God in faith and was, was, a, was a godly man. And yet both of them ended up having bitterness in their life. Here Job's doing the right thing, but he's in pain, he's suffering, he sees unfairness. And sometimes I think it's we as pastors, or maybe in your Christian life, you feel like, you know, I should never have this bitterness thing. Anytime I feel bitter, that, that must be a sin. I'd be careful. One of the things that, as I studied the book of Job, that I walked away with many years ago, and here's our KCS quote for the day, if you, if you want one, there's a difference between a taste of bitterness and being consumed with bitterness. There's a difference between a taste of bitterness versus being consumed with bitterness. 
you know, when they went to that water and they tasted it, was the water really bitter? Was it wrong for them to say, hey, this water's bitter? Was that a sin? <laughs> I don't think it was. I think they were calling it as they saw it. You know, we walked three days. We're really thirsty. We really like some water. And now this water here, this is bitter water. It tastes bitter. Let's be honest. Are there things in your life along the way that even if you're doing the right thing, that where someone does you wrong or you're put in a circumstance and you're, you're trying to do the right thing and, and, and it tastes awful? I don't think there's anything wrong with, with telling somebody else or praying to God and saying, you know, this situation I'm in, it's bitter. Yeah. But there is a difference between identifying, yeah, that's bitter, and tasting it in your mouth, disliking it, as opposed to what Esau did in being consumed with bitterness. Now, it's interesting in this story that we're going to go through this morning, and we're already talking about bitterness, but most of the time when you have the story in Exodus about the, their experience at Mara, it's, it's all about bitterness. And I understand that. That's okay. The name of the place is Mara, after all. And yet, the, the, the title this morning is Surviving Life's Journey. And if you're going to survive life's journey, bitter water is not going to cut it, is it? The key to surviving life's journey is water. I think sometimes we read this passage and we lose sight of the, the, the bigger story here is that God provided water. Sweet water. And they did exactly what we do. They come, were complaining and they were complaining to their spiritual mentor. You know, I find that people complain at, 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 at anybody who's a spiritual leader. And a lot of times the reason Christians don't want to get involved in discipleship is you start leading somebody else how to live their life just by modeling it and encouraging them. When things go wrong in their life and they don't understand what God's doing, guess who they're going to come talk to? They're going to say, hey, wait a minute, I'm, I'm trying to do like you're telling me and live according to biblical principles and look what happened to me. This is bitter. And they complained to Moses. Now, I put our title as the key to surviving life's journey. And the life journey's survival is water as well. I understand that in an eternal sense, in other words, if you die and stand before God without Christ, you're, you're going to be separated from God. And Jesus used this whole example of, of water. Remember when he talked to the woman at the well in John chapter 4 and verse number 10, Jesus said, If thou knewest the gift of God and who it is that saith to thee, give me to drink, he would have given of him and he would have given thee living water. Verse 14, he goes on and says to her, But whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst, but the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. That Jesus uses this very analogy that if, if you want to find forgiveness of your sins, and remember this lady that he was talking to, she was a sinful woman. She'd done a lot of wrong things in her life. And he said, you could receive living water. And he's talking about the cleansing water that would be his shed blood, that he would, that he would pay the price for her sins. And he uses the analogy of water. And I'm so glad. I remember we studied this for Life of Messiah. Nowhere in that story are you going to read that Jesus says you need to drink a gallon of this water. 
Nowhere in that story does Jesus say, you need to drink this water today and come back tomorrow and the next day. And you need to keep believing that this well has everlasting life in it and come back here over and over again. No, he says, one sip of this water will spring up in you wells of everlasting life. But you know, it's also true for the Christian life that we need a fresh supply of water too. I'm not talking about in order to keep ourselves saved or this, but I'm talking about living the Christian life. If in your Christian life you drink no water or only taste bitter water, your spiritual life will, let me put this in quotes, die. It will become a dead faith. Don't let my Calvinist friends make this false analogy. People say, you can't have a dead faith. I have not personally met a Christian who's not had a season or a time in their life where their faith was pretty cold and dead. Um, I'm thankful that my salvation is based on the promise and the guarantee that Jesus made, not on my behavior. However, if you want to have a living, vibrant faith that James talks about, it's going to, if you abide like Jesus told his believers there in the, the teaching of the vine, you have to abide. And he says, if you abide, you will produce fruit. Unlike my Calvinist friends who make that about eternal salvation, that's not what Jesus has in mind there. He's saying in your Christian walk, if you're going to start yielding and producing fruit, you've got to abide. And that abiding comes as we are consuming not bitter water, but good water. You know, the most unhappy people in my life typically I meet are not typically unbelievers. The most unhappy people I meet are bitter believers. People who know they're out of sorts with God and they're not happy with the, the, where they're going in their life. And, and they're, they're, they're typically, now not always, I'm not going to make, a, you know, but as a pattern, I have found they're the most unhappy people. That's why when you get a church that is unhappy as it, it to, you know, in a great degree as a generality, there's a problem in that church. Because should we not as believers be happy people? And if we're not happy people and we're full of bitterness, what it tells me is that we got a group of people who are not consuming the living water, but instead are living at Mara, complaining and critical and resentful of God. You see, the key to survival is water. The key to survival is water. Now this morning, we're going to move on in our text. I'm going to share you the two things that... How do, how do I, if, I, if I've got a, a bitter water in front of me, how do I make that, how does it become sweet? How do I deal with it? Well, let's go on in our story in Exodus chapter 15 and verse number 25. Our story goes on, you know, people have complained to Moses, what shall we drink? Verse 25, and Moses cried unto the Lord, and the Lord showed him a tree, which when he had cast it in the waters, the waters were made sweet, and he made for them a statue and an ordinance, and there he proved them. And said, if thou wilt diligently hearken to the voice of the Lord thy God, and wilt do all that is right in his sight, and will give ear to his commandments, and keep his statutes, I will put none of these diseases upon thee, which I brought upon the Egyptians, for I am the Lord that healeth thee. Now this morning I want to deal with the first part, mainly of the passage I just read, verse 25. What is the key? If I've got a bitter circumstance, 
as we look at this story and it illustrates biblical principle, what, what do I need to do? Well, number one, what you need to do is you need to put Jesus right in the middle of your bitterness. You need to put Christ in the middle of your life. That's what you need to do. I thought it was interesting. The Bible says that God shows Moses a tree. It wasn't just any tree. It was a specific tree that God says, this is a tree I want you to take and put into the waters. Now, I've read people online. I read a bunch of commentaries. Some people said it was a specific kind of tree that they put it in the water and it chemically interacted with the water and made the water. I, 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 don't, I don't know. I tend to think it's more miraculous than that. But whatever. All I know is God said, Moses, take this tree, put it in the middle of the water. And when they put it in the water, all of a sudden the water was made sweet. And what a wonderful picture this is of the finished work of the Lord Jesus. Jesus died upon a tree. He paid the price for our sin. He took the bitter punishment that I deserved and you deserved. He was beaten, he was scourged, and he was crucified. And it was a life or death circumstance. I was starving, literally dying of thirst spiritually that I was on my way to hell. And so were you apart from what Jesus did. That None of us could save ourselves. None of us could pay the price. And yet God took and put his own son upon a tree and took bitter water and made it sweet. I thought the disciples, they saw Jesus crucified, and I can't imagine what they went through, uh, where they, they had put all their hopes that Jesus was this Messiah, and they heard all of his teaching, and they saw all his miracles, and yet they saw him die on this cross, and they saw the Romans take him, they saw the religious leaders uh, cheat and, and, and bear false witness against him, and that Jesus died and dead on a cross, and they, they saw his body come down, and there they ran away and they hid, and there for those days they hid away, and day after day in their thirst. And can you imagine maybe the bitterness they may have felt? I gave up all this and I followed him and I thought is the people, the, the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, remember when Jesus comes across them, they, they began to tell the whole story. They knew all about it. And they said, we thought it was he who would deliver Israel. We thought he was the Messiah. But I'm glad that um, just as the children of Israel traveled three days being really thirsty, those disciples, three days later, the bitter water was made sweet because he lives. Wow. This morning, some of us are here and are in bitterness because you've gone your own way. You're not following God. There's, you're doing your own thing and it's led you to a disaster. But sometimes you can be doing the right thing, living the way you know God wants you to live, and God allows some unfairness and our human expectations are not met. And sometimes God allows us and brings us into these circumstances to reveal to us, are we really trusting God? And do you believe that God can take bitter water and make it sweet? Ooh. It's amazing how quickly we can lose sight of the Passover and the deliverance to the Red Sea and choose bitterness and the first key to survival into making bitter water sweet is to put Jesus in the middle of your bitterness Paul said it this way in Galatians six fourteen: God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ Philippians 1 21 says for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain so this morning no matter what bitter pill is in front of you, 
and you say, how, how can I take some circumstance in my life that is very bitter right now and make it sweet? All I can tell you is you, you got to put Jesus in the middle of it. That's what you got to do. Not really all that difficult, not all that deep. No matter what disappointment, put Jesus in the middle of it. Put Jesus in the middle of your broken marriage. Put Jesus in the middle of your financial stress. Put Jesus in the middle of your parenting discouragement. Put Jesus in the middle of your envy or your jealousy. Put Jesus in the middle of your pain. Put Jesus in the middle of the bitterness that you feel. Put Jesus in the middle of, of the rejection you've experienced in your life. You've got to put Jesus in the middle of it. You see, if you adopt the bitterness and the unbelief, God tells them, you know, they were under this physical covenant. You obey, you get blessed. You disobey, you, you don't. And God says, you, you, you do your own way and you're going to have the same problems the Egyptians do. You know, it's sad. But Christians today, at least American Christians for sure, we have the same problems the unsaved people do, maybe even worse. We have the same divorce rate. We have a lot of the same addiction issues going on. We have, we have a lot of the same issues. Why? Because too many Christians are living at Mara. And they haven't had a good cup of water in a long time. You know, you say, well, I don't think Christians, you know, I'm saved. I can't become bitter. No, you can become bitter. Christians can become bitter. That's why, you know, you say, I, I, I don't know what to tell you other than Ephesians chapter 4, a letter addressed to believers. We are commanded by the Apostle Paul, by God, through, through the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 4.31, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and evil speaking be put away from you. Or how about Hebrews chapter 12, which... Again, in the context, but I think this is applicable to believers here in Hebrews chapter 12. Looking diligently, lest any man fail of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you, and thereby many be defiled. You see, when, when you start drinking bitter water, or you, you, you don't get a fresh drink of sweet water of, of the presence of Christ in your life, and you start being consumed in bitterness, it'll destroy you. But I can also promise you, if you become a bitter person, it'll defile a bunch of people around you as well. It does. It, it's a contagious thing. That's why James, again, he's, James is not written to you to evaluate, am I really saved or not? That is not the purpose of the writing of the book of James. It was directed to believers, to Christians who are suffering uh, great persecution. And they, they, I'm sure they had a lot of <laughs> a bitter taste in their mouth, a lot of things that were going on in their life. And yet James talks to them about the words that came out of their mouth. In James chapter 3, James says, Out of the same mouth proceedeth blessing and cursing. My brethren, believers, these things ought not so to be. Doth a fountain send forth? forth at the same place, sweet water and bitter. He's saying inside your mouth, is, is it Jesus coming out of your mouth or is it flesh coming out of your mouth? And I would submit that many times, most of us, it's the flesh that comes out of our mouth. And if it becomes a, a, a pattern of you and, and your language is one that is full of filth and profanity and all these things, I would tell you, submit to you, that probably it's because you're living at Mara. And you haven't had a drink of good, sweet Jesus water in a long time. 
putting Jesus in the middle means to remember first, you say, well, how do I do this? I want to put Jesus in the middle of all with my problem. I've got this bitter issue in my life. What do you mean put Jesus in the middle of it? Well, the first thing I tell, tell you is to remind yourself when, you're, when that bitter taste comes, remind yourself that you were on your way to hell and what Jesus did for you, that he loved you so much, that, that he died for you. Don't just make some general thing because Jesus died and loves, knows everyone who's in here this morning. He cares for you. And if you don't know him as your personal savior, Jesus died for you. He offers you eternal life. He, he wants to have an eternal relationship with you and he paid a great price for you because you're worth it. I'd also tell you to, to put Jesus in the middle means to consider what would Jesus do? The old WWJD thing. Not just a bracelet. If you're confronted with a bitter situation in your life, ask yourself, what would Jesus do? You know, there were some times in Jesus' ministry where he... He was pretty direct, especially with the religious crowd. But during his crucifixion and his arrest, he, when he was accosted, he didn't revile back again. You and I got to submit like Jesus did in the garden where he said, not my will, but thine be done. If you're confident that you're following the will of God and what you're doing is right and God has led you to a place and he's, he's allowed you to have a taste of bitterness in your life, maybe the thing first thing to do is just like Jesus did in the garden where he was going to take upon himself the sin of the entire world. I think his issue is a little, you know, I think he, 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 he did a little more than you and I uh, are doing, but not my will but thine be done. Because you've heard the old illustration and it's a good one. You know, you squeeze something, you squeeze a fruit, and that juice comes out. You know, what comes out of us when we're squeezed? You know, if you want to put Jesus in the middle, it means being honest. There are some folks that you've got a bitter thing in your life, and God is trying to tell you, hey, you know what you need to do? You need to man up or woman up and be a little confrontational. Maybe that's what you got to do. But you got to be honest about it and broken before God and pray. It, it is a wonderful thing to put Jesus in the middle, to yield to the Holy Spirit of God, to fill our heart and mind with the Word of God, maybe through godly music, and believe that God can really take a bitter situation and actually make it sweet. You ever seen that? If you haven't, I kind of feel bad for you. Because what kind of Christianity do we really have if we just live with the normal ups and downs of life as opposed to, ooh, do you see that? This, there's a situation in this person's life over here. And that, boy, that's, a, that, that's, that's pretty bad. That's pretty bitter. But somehow, through the power of the Holy Spirit of God, God's turned things around and he's taken a bitter circumstance and he's made it sweet. You see, we need that living water, even as Christians. We do. You know, one of the great joys of being in the ministry, and for me personally, just for me, one of the things I enjoy, and I think God has called me to do, and I, I enjoy doing it. Um, I enjoy marriage and family. I do. And... Sometimes the Lord allows me, and Jen is always right there in, right there with me. Um, 
But to see two people who are at enmity with one another, both unilaterally decide, I'm going to put Jesus in the middle of my life, in the middle of our relationship, and over time, God can take something that is very bitter and make it sweet. And I know you may be listening this morning somewhere around the way and say, oh, that could never, you don't understand how bitter, no, I, you know, I'd write a book, I guess if we changed all the names to keep protect the innocent, I guess we could do. But let me just tell you, there, as long as Jesus Christ is still alive, there's hope. And you can say I'm too, a simpleton, and I guess I am, but I have never found that when two people both agree to put Jesus in the middle of every part of their life, that those two people cannot lovingly and sweetly live together. Now, if you're sitting here thinking, oh, you don't know my spouse, then you're not listening to me. I'm not talking about your spouse, I'm talking about you. You can't put Jesus in the middle of your spouse's life. I'd like to. No, I wouldn't. <laughs> Anybody who knows my wife knows which side the devil fell into, and it is not her side. The one whose mouth gets him into the most trouble. You've been sweet since day one, hon. She's on steroids right now, so I would be very careful. Um, <laughs> this is a public service warning this morning. If you're going to complain about church today, can I do that? This is my wife. She's going to kill me, but that's okay. Um, I, I, I would say bypass her and talk to me today. Um, so, no. She, in her worst day, she's nicer than my best day. I don't know. My point being, <laughs> refocus. Two people put Jesus in the middle. It works. And I have been blessed to have some people tell me, say, you know, I never thought there was any of that. And I never, I couldn't even stand this person. And now all of a sudden I come home from work, they're the one I want to be with. You put Jesus in the middle. But I know a lot of folks, they say, no, I'm not going to put, I'm not going to do that. I'm not, you know, you ever heard this phrase? I'm going to hold on to the bitter. There you go. Thank you, Russ. I'm going to hold on to the bitter end. Ever heard that one? I, ever been guilty of that? Saying, I know, God, what you want me to do, and I know I'm bitter in this, and I know it's consuming me, I know it's wrong, but I'm not letting go. Do you know where that phrase comes from, the bitter end? You know, I start studying stuff. I find stuff that I never anticipate I'd find. The bitter end is actually a nautical term. The, I guess it comes from the old English word bitter bite. And you know the cleats that are on a boat where you tie your boat to the dock? And you don't want to just tie it to the lunch pail inside your boat. That's a bad idea. You know, um, I think I did that with Brock's boat once or twice. He's always like, Brock says, drive my boat, drive my boat. I'm like, I don't want to drive your boat. Drive it right into the wall. Right, Brock? I don't think I ever did that. I drove your jet ski into a wall, but I never drove your boat into a wall. But it's the cleat on a boat. Now, if you get a really big boat, you need a bigger bleat, a cleat. Bleat, cleat. Right? Matter of fact, they would, they would manufacture the bigger ships with points along the way that were designed to eventually attach an anchor. 
And it was, let's attach the anchor to the bitter, to the biter. And then it became bitter. And did you know that, got a wonderful little diagram here for you this morning, because that's just how I roll. I know you all are better visual learners. The link of the chain that attaches to the biter, the, the, the solid part of the boat, is called the bitter end. The biter end. Get it? Now, what is interesting to me as I read this, especially with the bigger ships, if you put a ship in the, out there in the water and you drop anchor, did you know that there's people assigned a, the deck duty that their job is every so many minutes or every 15, 20, 30 minutes, they go and inspect the anchor, the anchor cable, the chain? I did not know that. Well, I learned something. Because is, if, if a boat's an anchor, even if they're in, in a you know, a, 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 a port somewhere or whatever, they're anchored out there in the bay. The tide can come in and the tide can go out. You can have weather changes. And the problem would be is you may end up with, you've got too much chain and now you've got slop on your chain. And a, or there might not be enough chain. If the water comes up and pretty soon you need more chain. So they, they, the person goes and then they report to the captain, we need more, we need more chain down, we need more anchor down, we need more anchor up to keep it at, a, at, a, at the right kind of tension. Say, why is, that, why is that important? Well, apparently, especially in emergency type situations, if the weather changes rapidly and you realize that the, the waves are going, the, the boat's starting to bounce like this, and you don't have enough chain, <laughs> it's a bad experience. So they let more chain out, and they let more chain out, and the water, the boat's going higher and higher. They let more chain out until they come to the bitter end. Now, when they reach the bitter end in, in a storm situation where the boat's going up and down, you are now at the end of your rope, so to speak. And apparently, if you leave that bitter end attached to the biter, it'll destroy your boat. So on many of the big ships, if you go to where the anchor is, you have something like this. And you can see on the wall, they've got it, you know, painted on the wall. Bitter and release. You see, when that last link of the chain that's attached to the boat, on the newer boats, that it's, it's held with a pin. And that last link is called the bitter end. And the pin that's in between there, guess what it's called? This is really brilliant. It's called the bitter pin. I don't make it up. I just, I just read the stuff. And if the captain says, we are in an emergency situation because anchors are very expensive, but it may come down to our boat is destroyed or we pull the pin. And on most boats, and I'm sure if I were to expand this, Somewhere right around on this wall, they will have attached to the wall a giant sledgehammer. And the sailor would literally come and pound, you can see where it's been done at least once before, and take a sledgehammer and pound that pin out of the bitter end. Letting the chain fall into the water, freeing the boat and saving the boat. Now, you may be here this morning and something in your life that's really bitter. And it's killing you. And you have said, oh, I'm at the end of my rope. I'm, I'm at my bitter end. 
Now, my dear friend, I, I have to tell you, you've got two choices. You can leave the pin in, and that bitterness will destroy you. Or you can let the Holy Spirit of God come to your heart with a sledgehammer, which is what it'll take, and pound the bitterness out. Amen? Lord, thank you for the teaching of your word this morning. I thank you for the patience of your people. Lord, I pray that as we go through this life, I pray that bitterness would not consume us. Lord, I pray if there's one here this morning that doesn't know you as their personal Savior, they've never had a drink of that living water, my dear friend, would you, would you take a sip this morning through faith? Um, the Bible's really simple again. In Acts chapter 16, the Bible says, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Would you believe on him as your Savior this morning? But how about it, dear Christian? Are you living at Mara? Is he consumed in bitterness? Maybe it's time this morning to let it go. Holy Spirit of God, enlighten us, illuminate us, help us to yield to your presence in our life. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you please stand? Brother Joe's going to lead us in a verse.